Welcome to the Institute Journal Podcast, where we explore Institute professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Brandon Cox, Senior Editor of the Institute Journal. With us is the NCIC of the Institute Journal, Sergeant First Class Osvaldo Akite, and Senior Editor Tony Mena. Today we discuss the article, The Filthy 13, Exploring the Principles of Mission Command, with special guest Roy Parker, a World War II expert and historian with the Army University Films team. Before we kick things off, Roy, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Roy Parker. Um, I'm from Bonner Springs, Kansas. I'm assigned as a contract historian, so I'm a government contractor. I work for the films team, the Army University Press Films team here at Fort Leavenworth. I've, uh, in my time on the films team, I have directed three films, The um, Encirclement and Nancy, Vanguard, um, it's a film about uh, Division Cavalry and Desert Storm. I've got a short on Slim, and I'm currently working on a uh, film on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1944. So I'm essentially a scholar of the Second World War. Um, I have did my undergrad at the University of Kansas. I got a bachelor's in history with a minor in Germanic languages and literature. And then I have a master's in a military history from Norwich. And before that, long before I became a scholar, I was in the United States Army. I uh, joined in, in January of 1990. I was uh, 19 Delta. Um, when I got out in 2005, I was an E6. And I served in all different kinds of cavalry organizations from a task force scout platoon, uh, an armored cavalry squadron, a division cavalry squadron, and finally um, I did a, a brigade reconnaissance troop, which is no longer, a, um, doesn't exist anymore. Prior to that, those were that's all of my experience. I have multiple deployments to Iraq. I was in Operation Desert Storm. I also was in uh, Bosnia, and I did um, Macedonia, and a little bit in Kosovo as well. And thank you for joining us. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. So today we're talking about the Filthy Thirteen, which is uh, has a movie uh, made after it called The Dirty Dozen. And I was wondering, and the author says that too, and the author couldn't be here today. Could you talk a little bit about the story itself, or or how it adapted to film, and why it was important? Uh, well, in the film, the film's a 1968 film, stars Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown, uh, fresh off the of his time in the NFL. It has a very young Donald Sutherland. It has Charles Bronson, Fess Parker. There's a whole Telly Savalas. It has a whole cast of characters. And in this, um, the character of Major Reitzman, which is played by um, Lee Marvin, is asked to form a special team to uh, conduct uh, an assault on a chateau that houses a lot of German staff officers and command um, behind the front in Normandy prior to the invasion. And to do this, he's given his pick of prisoners on death, ro- on death row or um, subject to life imprisonment. And from that, he selects 12, and he forms them into a squad. And uh, no spoiler alerts. Or spoiler alert, I'm not going to spoil the film, but like it's a, it's a classic in my opinion. I've watched it multiple times it's it's funny it's brutal um but it's it's really it's part of the um it's part of the genre of film that came out in the late 60s where they started to celebrate um anti-heroes and so it's one of the first war films that features uh where the the protagonists the uh the soldiers in this case are not exactly great americans they've all done some pretty 
some pretty vile things. So when I saw this come across my email, I was very intrigued. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit of a background of what's, you know, what's happening here in World War II, where we're at, what kind of a setting it, it is. So Operation Overlord is the, invade, the planned invasion of um, the European continent by the Allies. They select five beaches in Normandy, Juneau, Gold, Sword, Utah, and Omaha. Utah and Omaha being the Allies. Prior to that, there was a massive jump by three um, airborne divisions. The, so on the night of June 5th into the early, very early morning of June 6th, you had the 101st, the 82nd, and the British. They jump on designated spots behind the lines. And he was a, he was a part of this in the with the 101st. But, like, if anyone has watched, and I'm going to use some pop culture references, um, if anyone's watched Band of Brothers, you've seen that the their sticks get really strung out. And so there's a lot of... Uh, ones and twos, fives and sixes, and, and people just assembling people. And this happened to McNeese's demolition squad that he was asked to form. Um, they got spread out, and he's the only one that makes it. The rest of his stick is, is spread all over the place. And so, but he still knows the mission, and he, so he starts assembling stragglers that he finds in order to go and destroy, what is it, two bridges that they had to take out? That's... I think that that's one of the strengths of um, of this style of mission co- mission command, because the the trust that first of all that Colonel Sink, the regimental commander, has in him to form this team, right, and then getting out there on the ground and just doing it, right, without with no real supervision, right, but trusting that hey, I know that these dudes are gonna. All I have to do is I have to say this is what I need you to do, boom. And then the rest of it is up to you, right? right. So, like, within, the, within these parameters, this is the intent. I need this bridge destroyed. I need that bridge destroyed. Okay? Boom. I've given you my left and my right limit, right? So, but within that left and right limit, how I destroy those bridges and the manner in which I do it, as long as they get destroyed, that's all that matters, right? And so that right. I have, as the team leader, McNeese here, he has the freedom to, to do that without really with no supervision with no supervision at all um that's that takes a lot of trust right and the only way to build that trust is is over time you know what the saying is uh that trust is is built like in bricks one brick at a time but it's lost in buckets so yeah and so when um when we're talking about missions and pr- you know principles of mission command we're talking about uh Decentralized operations, basically uh, a, a command and control method of, you know, meeting uh, objectives and things like that by decentralizing some of that those operations and exactly what you talked about. And that, that was something that the paratroopers needed to do, right, or needed to have an understanding of that because, like you said, their chocks can end up anywhere in the region. Some of, some of them had to jump early. Some of them had to, to go long distance because they didn't end up where they needed to because of whatever X, whatever reason you want to give. And so it was important for the airborne operations and something that was embedded into those type of soldiers, which is what we were talking about here. But was that common throughout? Was that decentralized operations happening with the infantry, with the, with the artillery, with, I mean, with um, the mechanized units? Not across the board. I think that there, it just, it depended on, the unit. So there's some units where you'd see that, but not like, you know, the, the airborne is really a different fruit in World War II. First of all, it's it's not that far from the experimental stage, right? So 
Um, the U.S. hadn't had paratroopers for very long. And so they were able to do a lot of different things because they're so new, right? Um, but, like, and I just to use another pop culture reference, right, if you've seen Band of Brothers when they get to Bastogne, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but there's a scene in Band of Brothers where um, Jimmy Fallon is bringing ammunition to the paratroopers and he tells Major Winners, like, hey, you guys are surrounded, just so you know. And Major Winners is like, son, we're paratroopers. We're always surrounded. But, you know, that, that, that mindset, right, that we're, we're being dropped behind everybody. So we have to be, there's certain things that we have to do. We have to take initiative, right? We can't, we can't wait sometimes for instruction from higher. We can't, we can't, we have to exercise disciplined initiative in the absence of concise orders, right? And so, like, I wasn't told to take this hill, but I see that this hill is wide open, and I see that it is the dominant terrain in this feature, in this in this valley right here. So I'm going to take it, right? And that that kind of stuff is not it's it's not as common in the army of um, 1944 as we would be now. Does that make sense? So some units they're like that. Some units are very um, they're very controlled, right? So it's very set piece. Like you move here, you move here, you move there. Um, in other units, it's, um, there's more freedom of maneuver. There's more freedom of, of action just from our films that we did. The one that we did on the encirclement at Nancy, the fourth armored division, there's a lot of shared trust between the subordinates there in the division between, uh, John Shirley Wood, the division commander and his, and his subordinate commanders in the combat commands like Bruce Clark and, and others. And he, he trusts them and lets them take initiative. Right? And he's trusted by not by his core commander, Eddie, which is a totally different story, but um, by Patton, the army commander, as Wood and, and Patton know one another and they think, they think similar. So, mm-hmm. so they, like, that's an example of, of people being allowed to take discipline initiative, but like, it's not across the board that way. So I remember in another pop culture reference uh, in Saving Private Ryan, which is one of my favorite movies, um, I know there's a point in there that you were just talking about where um, it kind of relates where Tom Hanks... Uh, sees uh, a firing team up by a radio tower. And uh, they said, hey, sir, this isn't our mission. You know, we could just go right. We don't have to take this hill. We don't have to do that. And he's like, yeah, but do you want to just leave it so they can surprise the next company that comes through? And I think that that, too, is that freedom of maneuver, that allowing uh, the American soldier the, the ability to use their expertise to take to take something that they know they should to do what's right is powerful. And I think that that's what a lot of these guys did in this squad, have a lot of those same decisions to make, and then they made them, and they were successful. I agree. I mean, the, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army does have a long history of um, subordinates exercising disciplined initiative in the absence of of concise orders. You know, you think back to the frontier um, in the 19th century. Uh, it was very rare for a cavalry troop or a mounted infantry troop to. Uh, to maneuver as an entire regiment or even sometimes at, at the company level. So they were, you were constantly, there was a, a lieutenant and a couple of NCOs way out on the frontier, right? And they had, they couldn't, they couldn't get guidance because it would have taken days prior to the, the telegraph, right? And even then it still would have taken time to get concise instructions. So there's right. this, there was, there is this history in the in the American Army of of leaders exercising sound judgment in the absence of concise orders, right? And that's 
it's some it kind of goes like in peaks and valleys. Sometimes it's sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. In World War II, it wasn't because the army expanded so fast, so quickly that it's not always there because the there wasn't a ton of time to build up trust between subordinates. So in some units, like in the Airborne, like in the 101st, they are started from scratch. And so all of them come up together with a cadre of officers and NCOs. So they've been together for a long time and they understand one another, their strengths, their weaknesses, and they know the mission, right? Other units that had to be, you know, spun out of whole cloth, if you pardon the pun, right? Like those units, especially like if you go from an army of less than a million prior to Pearl Harbor to an army of 13.9 million, I mean, that's, that's a lot in, in a short amount of time. Hence the, the trepidation that some commanders have with trusting their subordinates in World War II, but not here, not in the Airborne, because those guys had to be like that. Yeah, I guess that, that comes back to what made them successful, and that's what, you know, you can't just let a unit go do whatever a unit wants, right? Because if you look at examples now in Ukraine and things like that of units out there alone without orders and things, what are they doing? They're committing war crimes. They're committing, you know, they're, they're, they're not meeting objectives or doing anything, you know, to help out their cause or whatever. Um, so you can't just do that with every unit. No, There's you, things that enable a unit to be able to be success, successful. And I think that's what we're talking about here is the, the principles of mission command. Yeah, they they train together, you know, and they – so I know because we've trained together and, we, you know, for these guys, they've been at Tacoa since the start, right? So I know that you can do these tasks because I've seen you do it with my own eyes, right? right. You've been out there. I've watched you. So we've built that trust over time, right? And so when I tell you – I need you to do X or I need you to do Y. Um, I don't need to fill in a lot of the details because you know me as well, right? So I just, hey, take that hill. Hey, go secure that bridge. Hey, go seize this. You know, like I, I know all of the, the, uh, the implied tasks within the task that you've just given me. Does that make, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you just yeah. mentioned training and that's, that's talking about competence being able to understand, you know, we mentioned left and right limits. That's understanding the commander's intent. Yep. Um, knowing the the operation, knowing the the plan, right, was part of that. And now, if we if we bring that focus into what NCOs should be doing, right, with the NCO journal, you know, what role does the NCO play in all these things? And then you mentioned a lot of great things, right? Training, training their soldiers to be able to be competent at certain tasks, and you know, that shared understanding. Communication, talking about what the plan is, what is the commander's intent, what are we meant to do here, right? So I think that's that's the role the NCOs played. I, that's what I thought was successful. That's what made these guys successful. Absolutely, I think that too. You uh, notice the the other part of competence, which is you train to to make your soldiers competent, and then you witness competence over time, so you get to know your soldiers on a professional and personal level, and then you can gauge that to use them to fight and win the mission. Oh, definitely. It's the, my, my last year in Iraq, I knew my soldiers and my team, team leaders better than their wives did because I was with them every single day, you know? And so it got to be to the point where, where I knew without even, um, without even saying it, I knew what sergeant so-and-so was going to do i knew what specialist this and that was going to do without even 
All I had to say was, I need you to do this. Boom. And I, they, they automatically understood because we, we lived together, because we trained together, because we worked together. You know, we were, we built that cohesion. That cohesion didn't just appear magically, right? It was, it was done one brick at a time. Me, you know, they had to trust me. For just because I have three up and one down doesn't necessarily, I mean, yes, I'm going to respect that rank, but I had to show them that I was competent to do not just my job, but the ones above me and theirs as well, right? I have to, that's part of the buy-in right there. It's not just like, you will trust me. No, I have to build that trust with them too. And I have to do that by performing constantly. So they, and it's, and the, you know, people are constantly watching you. You know, and so they see you, they see you when you're, when you're at your best, they see you when maybe you're not at your best and you need to be thinking about that all the time. And that, but that's how you build trust, especially I think when your soldiers see that you're a human being. Well, I think, um, like what's really interesting about this article. I think the most interesting is the human aspect of it right the soldiers their story yeah. the things that they went through kind of like watching a movie it's just, yeah it's so let's talk thing. let's talk about mcneesy then you know, yeah, yeah that's i mean so we don't really know like that much about him this guy saw a lot of stuff i mean oh. you know uh normandy first of all you go normandy market garden and the bulge i mean you're talking about three of the biggest operations that the army did in the 20th century period Right. And he was he was a, a key part in all three of those. Right. Especially um, and not all of them were successful. So Market Garden is a failure strategically. Right. Not saying that he failed in his mission, because obviously his mission is laid out pretty, you know, and the 101st um, does succeed in taking Eindhoven. Right. But I mean, that's that's a everybody's seen a bridge too far. That's a that's a pretty decent representation of, of what happened, you know, Um I've always wanted to do a movie on Market Garden, but I can't see a time when we would have to jump in and seize three bridges and one single route for uh, for armored vehicles to pass through. But, I mean, that's essentially what they had to do. They had to jump in. They had to, And it's not just – it's three primary bridges, but there's also – it's Holland, right? So there's canals everywhere. So it's just it's not just these big bridges like the Gras River Bridge and, and the Arnhem Bridge. It's like the bridges over canals too because the canals are, are – they're obstacles. You know, they're – there's um, there's water in them. They're deep. It's why you can't get tanks across of them. Across them, you know, you have to. The Germans are able to use these canals. They've set it up as part of their defense of Holland. You know, they know Holland. They've been there since 1940. So um, it's not that, and they're they're ready for them, right? And it's it's not a it's not a gimme. I mean, this is these are some these, like um, my my coaches in football would have said this is a knife fight, guys. I mean, this is exactly what this. This is a gritty game right here. Operation Market Garden, that's not a lot of pretty maneuver right there. That's a lot of that's a lot of close quarter. I mean it's it's pretty it's pretty chaotic. And the same with the bulge, you know, the bulge they're surrounded at Bastogne, right? And they've got an entire entire Panzer Corps and an army surrounding them, right? And yeah, the Germans aren't aren't hundred percent, but they get you know, they get kind of caught. They're not it's not just paratroopers by themselves against tanks. They've got armor there and they've got anti armor, but they're they're cut off and surrounded, right? And so it's the, it's the Alamo for them, you know. I mean, the John McManus's book, um, Arden Alamo, like that's that's true. It is like the Alamo for them. They don't know that they don't know that they're making it out, 
right. you know, because they don't they don't know that the German army's on its last legs. They know that they're still fighting the German army, and right now they're surrounded. Like that, those are so. That's the interesting part to me is like you know, this these are really tough fights, and the Remagen Bridge. I don't know if you guys know about when you know about the Remagen the the Ludendorff Bridge is what it's called in Germany, but like the Remagen Bridge is another knife fight too. I mean, and they just kind of. It's the last bridge over the Rhine that hasn't been blown, and they're able to capture it intact, right? Because the Rhine is a massive river, um, and it's the last natural obstacle um, for Germany. Thank you, Mr. Parker, for joining us, and thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast.